0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Anita Volman, Associate Professor in the Department for the Study of Culture at University of Southern Denmark. Hello, Dr. Volman, and welcome to our channel. Hi, Victoria. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Metaphor and Illness Writing, Fight and Battle Reused, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2022.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, let's start by getting to know you and your work better. Um, could you please tell us how you came to this project? Um, you know, what got you interested in illness narratives and the use of metaphors specifically? Um, also, um, how did this particular project came to be? Like, what are the the you know um, more infrastructural elements behind it? You know, a little bit of the the story. <laughs> Yes, of course, um, gladly.
1: Um, So this project emerged from an interest um, I had for quite a while about metaphors of the female body. And I've um, read a couple of uh, very interesting research articles about um, uh, how 19th century American female writers would um, use metaphors in very interesting ways um, as spaces of agency and resistance, for instance, against more patriarchal or biomedical imaginaries of the female body. Um, And um, that kind of aligned with the growing interest I had in the fields of medical humanities and narrative medicine. And then in um, 2017, I joined um, a very exciting research project in Denmark that was led by um, Anne-Marie May and Peter Simonsen. And they had managed to um, start a huge research project on the uses of literature. They were able to invite Rita Felsky as Niels Bohr professor to Denmark. Um, and through that project, I was hired and um, we started conversations about the uses of literature, of course, um, and I realized... I can also translate this idea of uses to uses of metaphors. And just as much as literature can be used for a variety of purposes, um, so can metaphors. Um, And then I increasingly looked into uh, contemporary autobiographical writing on illness, Um, and uh, I realized that metaphors were used there quite a lot as well, and this started the project basically.
0: That's beautiful. And it's so so wonderful when um, you know scholars come together and interest coalesce. Um, in this, this way. And, you know, research continues in a very, very productive way. So, you know, I, I admire that very much. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'll, I'll start with the, um, just to ask you questions about the book. And I will say that the book consists of six chapters, accompanied by the introduction and the conclusion. In the introduction on the very first page, we find that, quote, metaphor in illness writing, fight and battle reuse, reaches past these binaries to explore the varied usability of common, conventionalized metaphors, arguing that even when a metaphor appears problematic and limiting, it can in fact be reused and reimagined in unexpected and creative ways. End of quote. This paragraph sparks our curiosity and interest, and as we read uh, through the introduction, we discover the premises for the book. And that's actually about my question, specifically, what are the two premises the book starts from, and how can we think of metaphors in general, and metaphors in illness writing in particular, as having the capacity to be reimagined and reused? So the book starts with
1: um, a, uh, a binary observation or an observation about the binary ways uh, in which metaphors are being discussed in research, particularly in the fields, the fields of healthcare and um, medical humanities. So I realized that on the one hand, metaphors are considered to be harmful and stigmatizing and normative or prescriptive. And then on the other hand, researchers have also argued that metaphors are very important heuristic devices. So they help us understand complex phenomena, such as illness or illness experiences, in deeper or new ways. And some in this field even say, especially in psychiatric and psychotherapeutic fields, that metaphors even have the power of healing, of being very inviting, creative, or generative. And this kind of dichotomy or incongruity in how metaphors are being seen um, is maybe best exemplified uh, by two really seminal studies on metaphor in the 1970s and 1980s. And of course, there's Susan Sontag with her two essays on um, illness language, and famously Sontag argued that illness should not be spoken about in metaphorical ways, and that in fact we should Uh, purify our language from uh, all kinds of metaphors uh, when it concerns illness. So for Sontag it was really important to say that illness is not a metaphor and we should not use metaphor at all. And then on the other hand, shortly after George Lakoff and Mark Johnson published their famous book uh, Metaphors We Live By and they take the exact opposite stance by arguing that metaphors are concepts that's how they define metaphors and they also say our thinking is basically conceptual which then means there's no way that we cannot that we cannot think with without metaphors so there's really no way of not using metaphors so starting from this Of dichotomy or incongruity, um, I suggest two ways of looking um, at metaphors in my book. And the first premise is really to say that metaphors are forms that we use and we use them all the time. Um, But this use can be variable and multiple, and metaphor can be put to all kinds of uses, and often these uses can be quite unpredictable. Um, and there are a lot of practices of remaking metaphors, even when they are harmful, and we can, in that sense, repair metaphors. And in the second premise of the book is that um, metaphors and their creative uses are not special skills of poets or internationally recognized literary writers. Because the more I read about metaphors in the context of illness and medical humanities, the more I realized that doctors, for instance, too, are very creative when they use metaphors, or some of them at least are. Nurses are, um, other healthcare professionals, and patients, too, um, use metaphors in very interesting and creative ways, and all of them do not have a specific literary training. So, from that observation, um, I thought, well, what if um, we look more specifically at the practices and the strategies of rethinking and reusing and creatively playing with metaphors by looking at the ways that some accomplished writers are doing that? Um, and how can we then translate what they do to um, our own practices, our own understanding of metaphors, and is there something that we can learn um, in our own lives about how we can use harmful, stigmatizing and really problematic metaphors?
0: Thank you. That's fascinating. And I love the fact that it does have a uh well, I will say practical aspect. Uh, you know, um, your book looks at how metaphors are used. You know, so by doctors, also by nurses, takes that into consideration. Um, that's not to say that you know other other books m- maybe don't do um, you know work in the same direction. But here specifically, when we're talking about illness narratives and how illnesses are represented through metaphors, I think it's very very um, important, um, and that allows me to go to uh, my next question that also refers to the introduction, uh, where, um, you know, the book proposes studying metaphors and narratives together as a structuring and structural elements in accounts of illness. And I was wondering whether you could say more about this proposal and how it, quote-unquote, activates both elements in a new and intriguing way.
1: (sighs) Yes, absolutely. Um, So one of the things that got me interested in metaphor was that increasingly in the past two decades, maybe, um, scholars in the field of medical humanities, health humanities, narrative medicine um, have... Um, focused on narratives quite a lot. Um, it's really central to, to this entire field. And narrative has been associated with um, identity, with sense-making. Also, it's important for a diagnosis, for instance. So narrative has played a, a massive role in, in, in the fields and their, their emergence. But then increasingly also scholars have started to wonder about the centrality of narrative. And they have argued if maybe narrative has started to matter too much. And James Phelan, for instance, has warned against the narrative imperialism. And there were a couple of very interesting um, articles um, about... um, alternatives to narrative. So some scholars wondered if maybe photography and visual arts, for instance, um, are non-narrative forms that we should look into a little bit more. Others have argued for more lyric modes, or again, a non-narrative mode, um, such as poems, for instance. But then also, again and again, the topic of metaphor came up and figurative language. And the question that was often raised but not really answered was if these different non-narrative forms might free us from the overly narrow focus on narrative. And um, this is something that got me started. And I realized, however, fairly quickly that we we probably um, fare better if we think about metaphor and narrative together. Because very often metaphors occur in within narratives. They are embedded in narratives. And then there are also a couple of um, papers um, that propose that there is even a narrative potential in metaphors themselves. And I think this becomes quite clear when we look at a metaphor like life as a story or illness as a journey. Um, these metaphors... Almost invite us to narrativize them. Um, and some scholars have called this kind of the mini-narrative or the or narrative scenarios that are part of metaphors and that just wait for us to um, unfold the narrative that somehow is there, like a kernel. Um, and what is often also telling, of course, is that there is an overlapping in how metaphors and are called. So sometimes the life as story or illness as a journey metaphor are called narratives. Sometimes they are called metaphor. So this kind of interchangeable use of the terminology itself kind of alerted me to the fact that maybe it's better to think about these two forms together. And then of course I started to wonder to what extent narrative Um, and the narrative devices um, that are part of storytelling can be used to think about metaphors in different ways um, to activate that kind of potential of usability um, through literary devices that are part of um, a narrative. And that started,
0: yeah, my investigation. (laughs) That's great. And so... Important, I would say, um, as, as research, um, you know, on the same uh, on the same idea, um, right, we, we see chapter one entitled Metaphor Use Strategies and Methods um, that theorizes, quote, two approaches for metaphor analysis. And that's a quote from page 19 and focuses on Arthur Frank's memoir at the will of the body from 1991. And I wanted to invite you to say more about the two approaches and the ways in which they underline, um, and I'll use another quote here, semantic flexibility and inherent unpredictability of the metaphor, end of quote.
1: Yeah. So what I what I try to do in that first chapter is lay out two approaches to metaphor. One is classic metaphor analysis, and the other one is a more narrative approach to metaphor. And the classic metaphor um, approach, um, just to um, yeah, maybe remind listeners uh, who are not so familiar with this type of research. Um, Classic me- metaphor analysis consists in identifying um, source and target domain. This is at least how cognitive sciences scientists call these two domains. In literary studies, we often speak um, of tenor and vehicle. And what this means is that we identify uh, what is the source, what is the target, and what kind of features are carried over transferred from the source to the target. So if we think about illness as a fight or a battle, for instance, then we know that illness is the target and fight or battle is the source. And there are specific features about this idea of fight uh, or battle that we automatically transfer to this idea of illness. So we think about soldiers, we think about heroic behavior, um, it's a a life and death matter, Um, we have some kind of enemy that has transgress the boundary, their weapons, and so on and so forth. And classic metaphor analysis allows us to think about the features in the source domain that are carried over, but it also makes us aware of um, features that we typically do not transfer. So when we think about battle, for instance, we often think about winning and losing a battle, but we less often think about the fact that we might also um, surrender, for instance. Um, another inspiration that I took for this kind of classic metaphor analysis part is a very interesting study, again, by George Lakoff and um, another colleague, Mark Turner, um, in a book that they called More Than Cool Reason. And they looked into the ways that poem poets use metaphors and how they... Poetically rework conventionalized metaphors and they identified four strategies and I used these strategies. I was very grateful for them actually that they had uh, already done that type of work. These four strategies according to Lakoff and Turner work we can question a metaphor, we can elaborate a source domain, we can extend a source domain or combine several metaphors with each other. And this was very useful for me to also try to understand what it is that the writers in my book are actually doing with metaphors. And um, as an example for what it might mean to elaborate a metaphor or a source the um, here's a, an example. Um, when we think about this idea of journey, right, or life as a journey or illness as a journey, um, we can't think about the vehicle of transportation that is used for this Um, journey and that can be anything basically you can walk you can uh, use a porsche for instance you can use a horse carriage or wings right (laughs) so you can get really creative about thinking about this just the form of transportation that is part of the journey um, as a source domain and the same applies to this idea of battle Right? We can think about what kinds of weapons are used. Um, and of course, in the medical context, we think about radiation and chemotherapy as weapons against cancer. Um, but also, when we start to think more about this idea of fighting and what it means in relation to illness or. Another conflict, um, then of course, kind of the classic weapon comes to mind. That would be, I don't know, some kind of rifle or sword. Um, but of course, we also know that words can function like weapons and humor can be a form of weapon as well. So that would be the, the first approach, the kind of classic metaphor analysis, um, which I applied to Arthur Frank's memoir, At the Will of the Body. And then, in addition to that, I propose that we can also think about um, metaphors through narrative analysis. So, the question is then how is a metaphor framed, and what kind of type of story is it embedded, and what kind of characters? Are there? What kind of space and time is being used? Uh, what is the course of action that is imagined? How, is, how does beginning and ending function? What kind of tone is there? Um, and what kind of rhetorical strategies are being used, such as irony, for instance, or intertextual references, negation, and so on and so forth. And um, just to exemplify this through another example, um, I I look um, at, as I said, Arthur Frank's illness narrative, and there's one chapter that is called The Struggle is Not a Fight. So very um, obviously, that chapter is really much concerned with um, this notion of fighting an illness. And I should maybe explain that um, in Arthur Frank's memoir, he talks about his own experiences with um, cancer, and what's so interesting about this chapter is how the chapter itself deals with, on the one hand, what it means to struggle with an illness, to fight against cancer, so it does that on the thematic level, but the entire chapter at the same time also do, does this on, an, on a stylistic level, because it struggles with the correct language, or the best possible language, to experience illness and to live through the process of um, getting better. Um, And what I find so interesting is on this narrative level is how Arthur Frank... Uses all kinds of narrative strategies to further explore um, this metaphor of fight and battle, which she is very critical of, um, as basically all of the authors that I look at. And Arthur Frank then decides to frame this chapter, for instance, with a parable from the Bible, namely Jacob's struggle with an uh, with the angel. And he also then uses another strategy uh, where he again unfolds the narrative potential of the battle metaphor Um, and he does that when he tries to visualize what happens in his body and what the white blood cells I think they are what what their role is and how they help him in this process of getting better and he visualizes these cells um, first as soldiers but For him, these soldiers don't fight, but they are guards who uh, stand on on a cliff or some elevation and are more defensive, actually. And then all of a sudden, he thinks, or he comes to think of the ancient Greek battle of Marathon, and he then explores that association a little bit more. And it becomes clear that he um, sides with the defensive Athenians. And this idea of the battle of marathon then evokes another association, another mini narrative in that sense, um, because he then tells us that he actually used to be a marathon runner himself. So then he talks about his own experiences with what it means to run a marathon and then what it also means to best, how, how you best take care of your body through, through such a strenuous experience. And he realizes, well, you need to be kind to yourself. You need to trust your body that your body can actually accomplish that. And all of these kind of explorations, these narrative explorations, um, help him better understand the kind of fight, the kind of battle that he's in. And he then comes to realize, well, it's not a fight in the kind of classic sense, but it's more of a struggle, a wrestling that he has to do. And um, I think this chapter shows, um, and and, yeah, Arthur Frank's chapter shows very beautifully how um, this notion of battle that is so ingrained in our way of thinking and speaking about illness and particularly cancer is on the one hand, something that um, is still with us despite all of the critique because it captures something really well. It, f- it often feels like a battle, right? If we are really sick and try to get better. Um, but what's interesting about Arthur Frank's chapter is that he is critical of this idea of fight uh, and battle, but it's not this kind of full frontal attack against this this metaphor, as we would expect from um, Susan Sontag, for instance, but he's more interested in actually negotiating um, these problems. And he really invests a lot of time to think through these associations from within The metaphor, to explore the the potential of this metaphor and the problems of this metaphor. And he finds his own kind of nooks to, to explore his very own associations. And by doing so, he appropriates that metaphor and makes it fit his own experiences. And that was something that I found extremely fascinating in this chapter by Arthur Frank.
0: Um, I would second that. And I found it extremely fascinating to, to read about all of this. I was not very familiar um, before reading your book with it. And I found it very, very, um, you know, wonderful in a way in which he works through um, these, uh, these metaphors, and he um, pays attention to himself and the process. Um, because sometimes, as you you mentioned too, the metaphors uh, of you know illness as a battle can alienate um, the self. Um, um, so I found that very very important, and of course I I hope our listeners will uh, you know run and get the book and know more about this. Um, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. And you know, with that, I'll, I'll get to chapter two entitled Susan Zontag, Using Metaphor to See More, to Hear More, to Feel More. And this chapter takes us to a beginning, namely Zontag's arguments against the use of metaphors when depicting illness, and it shows how her writing was, in fact, a way of exploring and representing a panoply of sensory experiences and affects. And I I just wanted to hear more, a a more detailed account of this chapter's uh, work, if possible. (sighs) So, yeah, but the
1: second chapter, of course, had to be about Susan Sontag because there's really no way around um, Susan Sontag if you write a book on metaphors and illness. And what I find f- and continue to find so fascinate- fascinating about Susan Sontag is that um, her essays in the 1970s and 1980s about illness metaphors were autobiographically inspired. She had cancer herself. Um, But what she makes clear in the second essay is that she did not want her own experiences relate to or entail another first-person account of someone who struggled with illness and suffered and then took courage. Um, Instead, she chose the essay form. um, And that's also very interesting in terms of the style of the essay, which is highly polemical. So she wanted to be argumentative. She wanted to voice strong opinions and make big claims and really wanted to stir a debate Also. Um, but interestingly she was also very much at odds with the essay form itself um, and in her diaries, for instance, she writes at some point that she needs or she feels she needs to give up writing essays because um, she feared that it might become a demagogic activity and that she comes across as someone who feels extremely certain about um, the ideas that she puts forward. But in fact, she wasn't that certain at all. So she realized that maybe through the form of the essay, she foreclosed more tentative and more explorative approaches to the topics that she was trying to discuss, Um, and that maybe the essay form was not the one that would allow her to express this type of uncertainty. And this background to Sontag's famous two essays helped me understand some of the contradictions that I um, initially found in her work, because um, the essays themselves are strongly against metaphors, as I mentioned earlier. But then there's also the prologue, where she uses several metaphors, which, um, and Jurassic argues, are uh, maybe the most cited metaphors for illness ever. Um, And those are the idea that illness is the night side of life. And the second metaphor is that um, life as a, uh, b- yeah, life in general uh, requires kind of constant traveling between the kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the sick. And then there is another contradiction, I feel, because when we look closely at her diaries, then we find that Susan Sontag, even though she was so dismissive of illness metaphors, she, she used illness metaphors herself Um, So there's one moment, for instance, where she talks about feeling like the Vietnam War when she speaks about her own illness experiences. So I started to wonder how Susan Sontag used and reused metaphors herself. And... Um, I took inspiration from the second essay, um, AIDS and its Metaphors, where she tries to correct some of the misconceptions of her first essay. And she says, um, metaphors, and I quote here, cannot be distanced just by abstaining from them. They have to be exposed, criticized, belabored, and used up. And I got hooked with this idea of belaboring a metaphor. And I was wondering, what does that mean? What does she mean by this? And can we find some examples in her own writing of what this type of belaboring might mean? And I then looked again at her um, writing on illness metaphors. And I realized that she uses all kinds of strategies um, to better understand what metaphors are doing. So, for instance, she collects all kinds of metaphors from a various cultural texts she then traces particular source domains, such as the notion of warfare or energy, through through all of these examples. And then she starts a comparative analysis and she looks at the different ways in which energy, for instance, as a source domain, is used for different kinds of illnesses and in very different ways. So I think one of the interesting examples of, among many others, is her comparison of this idea of energy in relation to tuberculosis on the one hand, and then to cancer on the other hand. And she finds that there are striking differences in how this metaphor is being used. And then if we look beyond her essays, um, we find a host of other metaphors that she used for describing her own experiences. And I've already mentioned this idea of the Vietnam War metaphor that she used for herself. And she, she writes at some point in her diary that she felt as if her body um, was invasive and colonizing and that someone is using chemical weapons on her. Um, and her only job basically is to cheer. And, I found several, actually, again, contradictory interpretations of this Vietnam War uh, metaphor. So, her son, David Reeve, wrote um, his own memoir, um, where his mother, of course, uh, takes a a central role. And David Reeve argues that this Vietnam uh, War metaphor is to him. not victorious at all. It's actually um, a sign of her feeling very diminished and depleted by what was happening to her. And then I found another reading of that metaphor um, by Deborah Nelson, who argued that, in fact, this metaphor was used um, by... Sontag not to describe herself as a victim, but in fact as the aggressor, as the person who uses all kinds of destructive methods to overcome victoriously um, that uh, illness that she was struck by. So... These are two contradictory readings, two interpretations, and we have no idea, of course, how Susan Sontag meant that metaphor when she wrote it. But what we also know from David Reeve's memoir is that his mother fought until the bitter end or at least this is how he describes her behavior and that she was also very much inspired by the triumph narratives of successful cancer um fighters such as Lance Armstrong sorry Lance Armstrong for example and um Reeve also argues that his mother deeply believed in the progress narrative of scientific research and that all of that informed her notions of conquest and victory and exceptionalism. And she really believed that she was able to triumph over her own cancer with the help of uh, science and um, the medical team. And what I find interesting then is this kind of dichotomy again in Reeves' memoir about his mother. Because there is on the one hand um, his assessment or his speculation that his mother really felt like um, the one who is being attacked and who is um, completely depleted by that. But then also as time moved on he realizes that this kind of victorious and triumphant attitude was a way in which his mother came to remember her own experiences. Um, And by believing in triumph and retelling her own story in this kind of triumphant, triumphant and victorious way, she started to experience that battle metaphor as one that was entirely empowering for her and liberating and nourishing in many ways. So I think it's really interesting to think about the temporal aspect to this. Um, The metaphor itself um, probably meant very different, even completely contradictory things to Sontag over the course of her own illness experiences um, and then later on when her cancer was um, for a brief period in remission. So this is the the first um, idea that I uh, explore in in this chapter um, that there is this temporal quality to using and reusing metaphors to describe similar experiences. Um, and then the other, aspect that I, became, that I found fascinating in looking cl- more closely into Sontag's own writing is that this idea that metaphors can also be a resource for, for dealing with illness and it can be a resource that is not just resistance um, but also about empowerment. And There are so many interesting layers in Sontag's own writing. Um, For instance, when we think about how she conceptualizes her own writing of essays and how she conceptualizes herself as being a writer, we find that she describes her style as a writer, as someone who is an adversary writer, someone who likes to attack And uh, she loved to use a lot of military metaphors, actually, to describe how she considered herself as a writer. And she enjoyed deeply to take that adversary position, that antagonistic position um, towards her ideas, towards other people's ideas, but also towards her own work. And in fact, she believed this kind of antagonistic style of writing to be the only style that would produce interesting writing. That's at least what she says um, at some point. So this idea that warfare then is also, of course, how we think about argument, right? We think about argument as war, for instance. Um, And for her, that type of warfare was deeply enjoyable and gratifying for her. And it was um, an immense source of pleasure to engage in that kind of intellectual intellectual, mm, battle. Um, But then, as I mentioned earlier, she also became increasingly skeptical about this antagonistic stance and she explored other um, options such as fiction writing, for instance, to um, get different approaches uh, to what she was interested in. And then there's also something very interesting in her work about um, interpretation and, and about trying to intensify feeling um, and exploring the senses also. So this is where kind of the subtitle of that chapter comes from this idea of to see more, to hear more, and to feel more. That is a quote from the essay Against Interpretation where she um, thinks about how we approach artworks and um, that we should uh try to think about them more in terms of how they affect our senses. And in that chapter also try to explore a little bit more to what extent metaphors might also have that potential in them, namely that they um, open up our senses and maybe afford a new visceral understanding of what we try to communicate when we use a metaphor. So they are all these kinds of layers in Susan Sontag's writing that um, I found highly fascinating and um, yeah, that I tried to um, yeah describe in, in that chapter.
0: <laughs> and I would say that, you know, you, you described and showed them very, very beautifully. And, you know, it was really a rediscovery of, of, of Zontag for me. And it was very, very interesting. And the, also the way you, you just explained this idea of belaboring was very um, was very captivating and also you know thought inducing so you know thank you for that um, I just want uh, to make a very very short mention because as you were you were talking about this uh, metaphor of war and the body as as um, you know a scene of war um, I was reminded of this graphic novel called The Replacement uh, written by Sophia Adriansen and Matu was the artist. And um, so, you know, it's about a um, postpartum uh, period where the mother, you know, is trying to to negotiate her own identity and wishes to have a replacement that could, you know, help her take care of, of, of the child. Uh, but there, um, there's this one very impactful uh, image on a full page where uh, the body of the mother is shown as a scene of war and um you know we have these um black spots where the wounds are on on her body um and you know how she's depleted and you know there there's uh, barbed wire and and um all sorts of the traditional elements that you would think about uh when war is brought up so you know i thought it's it's a very interesting type of visual addition to what you you mentioned, and that this type of metaphor is used uh, and reused in different genres and in different media as well. That maybe would be interesting to to our listeners.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think you bring up
0: something so important
1: with this example, namely that very often metaphors have this visual quality to them, right? It's Super easy for us to imagine the scene that you just described, um, and that is something that, yeah. If I wanted to criticize my my book, um, I would say I'm I'm just open. Um, I'm just focusing on written texts, right? But to also include this more visual aspect that you just mentioned through graphic novels, for instance, or visual art or photography, for instance, um, would have certainly opened up just another area. Um, that could be super interesting to explore, maybe in another book, <laughs> who knows.
0: <laughs> that was my next point. Yes, another book, please. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, and um, actually all the the next chapters are very, very interesting. And, you know, I, I invite the listeners to uh, explore them um, by themselves, um, namely Chapter three, chapter four and chapter five but also i would ask you to give us a little bit of a sneak peek into into them a little bit of a description and um, you know then we'll will will uh hope that the the readers will uh you know di- discover the, the chapters on their own
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's a great idea um, so uh in the other three chapters um i look uh, again at two other Examples of illness writing about cancer, and that is, of course, I say, of course, because um, uh, Audrey Lord uh, wrote this, this famous. Mm, um, autobiography, of course, on um, her own illness experiences with cancer. In fact, she followed it up with, with another one um, later on that is less known, The Burst of Light, it is called. Um, so in Chapter 3, I engage with Audrey Lord's writing on um, illness metaphors and again on this focus on battle and fight Uh, In the fourth chapter, um, I look into the writing of Anatole Braillard, who published um, a number of essays called Intoxicated by My Illness. And um, he also writes about his experiences with cancer. And he also uses the the fight and battle metaphor, but actually a little bit less so, because this chapter um, is, in that sense, different from the other chapters because Poya is so excellent in inventing new metaphors and um, so I explore a little bit more what his strategies are in um, thinking about metaphors that open up new ways of thinking about illness rather than narrowing down or limiting our understanding what illness and illness experiences might be like. And then the fifth chapter is again a little bit of an outlier in so far as the illness that is being described is not cancer, but depression. And I focus on an early text by David Foster Wallace called The Planet Trilophon as it relates to the bad thing. And that is a text that one could label as autofiction. Maybe um, there are autobiographical elements in it, but it's also a fictional story. Um, so again, I kind of um, take take another step away from kind of the, the pure illness writing, and look into the ways that David Foster Wallace thinks with his character, his first-person narrator, about depression, what kind of metaphors might work well to to describe the undescribable? Um, And I also pull in um, two other writers in that chapter, namely Siri Hustvedt and Joan Didion, who've written about the battle and struggle metaphor in relation to migraine. So this, uh, just as a little sneak preview, as you said, (laughs) about these other three chapters.
0: Yes, and I would have to emphasize again, the fact that, um, you know, the the examples are marvelous and the the analysis is really, really important and captivating. And, you know, um, I would really... Want to reread the chapters? So, um, but you know, <laughs> not, not to to dwell de- too much on this. I I will move on to chapter six, mm-hmm. um, entitled "From Theory to Practice: A Method for Using Metaphor." Um, and this chapter bridges literary analysis with a clinical and/or practical setting, and shows how studies such as the prison one can offer invaluable insights uh, beyond these case studies. And the chapter, quote, identifies five distinct steps for approaching metaphor, uh, end of quote, from page 21, and argues that understanding the power of figurative languages is a powerful tool in healthcare. So what are the five distinct steps here, and how does the study of metaphor train us to have a better grasp on the representation of the interconnectedness between illness and uh, health? Yeah.
1: Um, so this last chapter, um, I should say, maybe kind of more to explain more how it came into being, um, is maybe a, a very idealistic chapter <laughs> Um w- the major part of the the book is kind of standard literary analysis, right? So I do close readings of acclaimed writers and the literary the literary devices that they employ. Um, but the the last chapter then asks this, yeah, idealistic question: Can we translate these writer strategies into other contexts? And this question is um, informed by my teaching in Narrative Medicine, where I work with healthcare practitioners. Um, Some are accomplished doctors, others are medical students. And whenever I told them about my work on metaphors, it was always the question, so what? (laughs) Uh, A very relevant question, I think. Um, And a question that urged me to think about the ways in which the findings of my literary analyses can be applied to more specific um, contexts, to more specific communications with patients or among colleagues, for instance. And this this made me think about um, what I call then a metaphor method. And in many ways, what I propose in Chapter 6 might sound really banal or basic to literary scholars. Um, And I'm clearly not trying to reinvent the wheel or propose that this method is something entirely new, by contrast. Um, My aim is rather to try to communicate some of the terminology and some of the findings in metaphor research, in a very concise way so that it might be applied to all kinds of other social interactions and communications. And this last chapter is clearly directed at um, practitioners in healthcare, for instance, or in counseling. And the aim is to um, help in yeah, help produce or generate um, an engagement with metaphors that is more conscious and hopefully more skilled also. Um, So the five steps that you mentioned in your question are, as I said, very um, very banal steps. The first one is to identify a metaphor as a metaphor. So to ask what what is compared to what here? What kind of what are the two domains that we are dealing with? And then the next step is to identify the features that are being carried over. And often that's something that happens implicitly and automatically, and we don't really um, are aware of what is happening there. So I think there is a great value in becoming aware of what kind of features are being. Transferred, because that also opens up the possibility to understand, hopefully, more that there are other features that other people might activate, right, and might transfer that we maybe do not see or haven't um, uh, thought about. And then the third step is about evaluating the metaphor itself where is it successful, what does it communicate really well, and where are problems, where are issues that might um, misconstrue a situation, for instance. Because at the heart of it, every metaphor, of course, is also wrong. Every metaphor is a mistake in itself. Um, And then the fourth step is about um, broadening um, our lens, basically, and to think more broadly about the context in which a metaphor is being used. So who is using the metaphor um, and with what kind of tone, for instance, right? Is it ironic or not? Um, And um, especially when we think about who is using a metaphor, um, this really impacts, of course, um, or might impact what kind of features uh, in the source domain they might activate, for instance, And then the final step is a more creative step um, that invites people to explore the generative potential of metaphors, so to think about what other ideas a metaphor might afford and how these other possibilities might be activated. So, this is a, a method that I um, use in workshops and narrative medicine contexts with physicians and medical students. And um, what really is, as I said, the aim behind this is to raise more awareness about the metaphors that we are all using. Um, Very often metaphors are very conventionalized and we're not really conscious of them being metaphors. Or very often metaphors are also elements of fixed phrases or idiomatic language, for instance. So this kind of awareness to metaphors that are around us, but also to the metaphors that we like to use more generally in explaining something for instance. Um, I think this has, um, yes, at least this is what the participants often give me as feedback, is something that has proven to be valuable for them. Um, And we know from research also that uh, when people are more attentive to other people's type of language, um, that this can have a great benefit in the sense that when you feel that someone is paying this type of attention to your language, um, you come across as someone who listens really well and who seems invested uh, in what you're trying to express. And then... There are also other studies that show that when healthcare professionals, for instance, um, use metaphors, their communication skills are rated um, higher compared to people who use less metaphors. Um, so these are, yeah, very promising. Mm. Uh, findings that I, I think should encourage us to to be more attentive to metaphors, because also not any kind of metaphor you use has automatically a beneficial effect. So what we ne- need, I think, is a nuanced understanding about metaphors or of metaphors um, that allows us to see where they fail where they can potentially produce miscommunication and misunderstanding, um, but also how they can illuminate uh, other alternatives, for instance, how they might help us create a common language with another person. And um, yeah, basically how metaphors are really potent tools um, and they require... We uh, require skilled users, um, and um, so one of the the things that I've also uh, done in in the aftermath, basically, of writing this book, is to come up with a type of manual or um, kind of the old fashioned vademecum So it's a it's a postcard basically um, that I. Uh, use in in these training sessions with um, medical professionals or counselors for instance and um, it's uh, something that basically can be uh, put in in the in your pocket and you can kind of use it um, just as a quick reminder when you uh, notice a metaphor and want to Work with it uh, in a bit more, you know, nuanced um, and elaborate way. And um, for those of you, who, for the listeners <laughs> uh, who are interested in this this metaphor method um, and the this manual, um, they find. Um, I think Victoria, you promised to add a link um, to the podcast, where the the link leads to my website, and there I have um, another manual. That explains um
0: these five steps. Absolutely. Um, yes, with examples. Yeah. Yes. I'd be very, very happy to, to do so. And uh, you know, the, the link will be yeah, absolutely. The the link will be um in the the blurb, the description of the podcast on New books network. Um, and of course it will directly link to your, your website where it's it's very easy to to find and you know it's it's visually very appealing. So yeah yeah that was actually not my
1: doing but uh, a friend of mine who's a designer and who who did a fantastic job i think
0: (laughs) I, i agree um and um you know instead of of asking you about the content of the the conclusions and you know asking you to to tell us more about that i thought to ask whether there's something you would want to add that we did not come up um with in the conversation so far but you know, it would be very important for the listeners to, to know, or, you know, if, if I interrupted you just now, I'm sorry. And, you know, please, um, yeah, continue.
1: Not at all, not at all. I, I feel like I've, I've shared all my knowledge and I'm kind of emptied out now. <laughs> so, um, no, this has uh, been quite a, quite rich experience for me
0: as well. <laughs> I'm happy to hear. And, you know, that my, my last, um, Um, you know, um, thing to ask from you would be to... um, I was hoping to hear a bit about your current projects and, you know, your collaborations or things that you you plan to do in the the near future.
1: Yes, happily. Um, So I... I'm currently returning to um, a field of research that um, I was interested in during my Ph.D. Um, period, um, and that is the field of age and aging studies. So I've started to re-engage with that um, topic a little bit more, um, and I realized that I can actually use the findings of my book and the approach that I took there um, to other forms... Besides metaphors, so I realized, of course, after all of these years of thinking about metaphors, um, I should probably, um, you know, give them a rest and think about other forms. And I realized that this this approach works really well, also with stereotypes, for instance, um, and um, cliches about what it means to grow older. Um, And so this is something that um, I I explore at the moment. Uh, Can we think about such age stereotypes in such a way that um, stereotypes are not only something that's terrible and harmful, something that we should avoid at all costs, but are there uses of metaphor, um, sorry, uses of stereotypes um, that, um, yeah, expand our understanding of what stereotypes do. Um, and um, but the same goes for other small forms. So, I've recently become more interested in this idea of American myths and symbols and how they are currently being reused in the media um, in all kinds of creative ways um, in yeah p- current political discourses. And uh, another project that is um, just in the making is about memes and how memes are also some kind of small forms that can be used and reused in quite interesting interesting pedagogical ways also so this idea of using and reusing misusing creatively um, I think is going to stay with me for a while
0: I look forward to to read about these projects but also to um, you know see where where they go and how they uh, you know manifest whether in articles or books or you know talks or you know I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that
1: yeah thank you. I am too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, that was great. And I want to thank you again, dr. volman, for for being with us today. and um, I really hope to to interview you in you know months, a few months' time or you know a year back to new Books network about about these projects.
1: Thank you so much, Victoria, for inviting me to become part of this uh, podcast. I feel very honored. Thank you.